Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast, an audio-guided walk featuring many of London's untold, unsolved, and long-forgotten murders, all set within and beyond the West End. Today's episode is part one of two about 19-year-old Michael Douglas Dowdle. Described as a pathetic little mama's boy, his early crimes didn't just set out to prove his bullies wrong. They also became the first faltering steps of potentially a fledgling serial killer. Murder Marley's research using authentic sources. It contains moments of satire, shock and grisly details. And as a dramatization of the real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds. So that no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 154, The Sadistic Little Drummer Boy, Part 1. Today, I'm standing on Charteris Road in Kilburn, NW6, right in the middle of the St. John's Wood home of Teddy Seif, where Carlos the Jackal botched his first assassination, the Halsden home where eight-year-old Peter Buckingham took his last gasp, the Cricklewood Arms pub where Stephen Holmes met the kindly killer, and an unsolved attack by another potential ripper, coming soon to Murder Mile. Charteris Road is a lovely little residential street comprising of two long lines of two-storey terraces from the 1920s and 30s. It's very quiet and very orderly. With a smattering of silver birch trees, the road carefully marked with white lines to denote who parks where and when, and with a covered bike rack almost certainly chock full of Bromptons. There's no noise, no kids, no smell, and no mess. The worst crimes you could imagine happening on this street might be a yappy little rat incessantly yipping for its millionth morsel that minute of roast chicken tidbits, a 90-inch TV briefly blurting too loudly and risking the neighbours knowing that they watch trashy shite like Love Island, or scandalously, an Ocado delivery replacing their beloved avocados with tins of baked beans. And not the good ones, but the cheapo own brand. But every street has its dark secrets, and this street is no different. At 58 Charteris Road sits a nice two-story terraced house with cream brick walls, white windowsills, a thin front garden reserved for three bins and a UPVC entrance door to the right. It's currently someone's home, but back in 1958, this was a lodging house. On the first floor was a bed-sitting room occupied by a new tenant called Veronica Murray. But being new to the area, 
Almost no one knew her name, her occupation, her history, or anything else about her life. She was a mystery, and yet her death would become almost as mysterious as her life itself. As it was here, on Friday the 19th of December 1958, that her body was found. And although her murder asked more questions than it answered, it also marked the fledgling steps of a potential serial killer. My mates think I'm queer. I've tried to show them that they're wrong about me. I really have. But they always make me feel like I'm a nobody. A nothing. Well, I'll show it. Won't I? Michael Douglas Dowdle, known as Mick, was born on the 12th of December 1940. Fifteen months into the Second World War, and three months into an eight-month-long blitz. A time of trauma and death. Gestated in the terrified womb of a lone woman whose husband was a British Army captain serving overseas, Michael entered this world to the persistent bangs of bombs as the hospital violently shook. Right into his adulthood, Michael would always look like a baby. With a stick-thin body perched above his oversized head, a mop of Charlie Brown hair, a set of sticky-out ears, and his skin the hue of stale porridge. Although for some, this youthfulness would be a blessing, for Michael, it was a curse. Raised as the youngest of two sons to a struggling mother, Michael never knew his father, and he never would, as Captain Dowdle was killed in action when the boy was barely one. Uprooted from a nice cottage in Uckfield, Sussex, to a lodging house in Paddington, West London, he was desperate to be the hero his father once was. But Michael was no military man. Being small, weak, and prone to outbursts of tears, the little boy spent his early years clinging to his mummy's leg. Without a father figure to guide him, although his mother did the very best by herself, he resented his school his teachers, and being persistently bullied for looking and acting like a baby. By the age of six and a half, he was referred to a childcare officer. Owing to his volatile outbursts, his hysterical moods, his cruelty to animals, and his uncontrollable violence. In 1948, when he was only eight, his mother died. With both parents dead, he was uprooted from the big city of London to his aunt's house in the remote mining village of Llanillith, near Abathilly in Wales. Michael was now a foreigner in his own family, surrounded by relatives he barely knew, in a place he had never lived, hearing a language he didn't understand. And again, at school, this fragile little boy was mercilessly bullied for being an outcast and a nobody. And after a particularly vicious fight where the length of his nose was slashed with a knife, he would forever be given the nickname of Scarface Mick. During his turbulent teenage years, twice he tried to burn his aunt's house to the ground. He often drank himself insensible, going drink for drink with the older men. He persistently stole anything which wasn't nailed down, not because he needed it, but because he wanted it. And as his hormones raged, feeling sexually inferior as a late bloomer who the girls rightfully avoided, 
as his sexual aggression grew. His desperation led him to pay for sex. In his eyes, a man was defined by how much he drank, fought and fucked. Always bragging about his conquests. If anyone dared not to believe him, tears welled, lips quivered, a tantrum sparked, and a hate-fueled violence erupted. In 1955, 15-year-old Michael Dowdell joined the third company of the 1st Battalion of Welsh Guards, based out of Purbright in Surrey, and later at the Chelsea Barracks in West London. Having enlisted in the military, this should have been the making of him. Earning an honest wage, learning new skills, and being mentored by a flank of disciplined father figures. Only the rot had already set in. Being a drummer boy, a role far from the fight of his heroic father, and one of the lowest ranks in the battalion's band. Being surrounded by bigger boys, this only increased his anxieties. His commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Mansell Miller, described him in court as a bit odd. The boy had delusions of grandeur, despite being small and weak. The torment would be so merciless that in 1956, age 16, he tried to hang himself in the guardroom. During the three years which he spent in the Welsh Guards, he often went AWOL, disappearing from his duties to visit sex workers in the West End. On his 18th birthday, he convinced three of the guardsmen to join him for a few celebratory drinks at a hotel in Guildford. And although they only sunk a few beers to be polite, unable to rein in his desperation, he sank three pints of gin and had to be carried home. My army mates think I'm queer. So I have a drink, and then I feel better and more important. Once I started the heavy drinking, I liked it, and I kept it up. When I was drunk, very drunk, I would try anything. I wasn't fussy about what I did or what women I went with. It made me feel different. Routinely mocked by the squaddies for being a baby-faced mummy's boy, he began paying others to wash his shirts and to clean his boots. No one knew where he was getting this money from, but seeing him less as a target and more as an extra income the bullying stopped, and it made him feel superior. For Michael, he had finally found a way to prove his masculinity. But what the soldiers didn't know was that they had helped to sow the seeds of a potential serial killer. It's unlikely that Michael knew much about his first victim, as very few people did. Veronica Murray was born in the Northern Irish town of Londonderry in or about 1927. She was raised a devout Catholic and she was educated at a convent, but for whatever reason, she didn't stay. Why she left, we shall never know. Maybe she was fleeing an abusive father. Maybe she was kicked out for having sex out of wedlock. Or maybe this was an act of rebellion against her strict upbringing. It's hard to pin down exactly who Veronica was. 
as she changed her age to suit her needs. And although vivacious and chatty, many people knew her, but not well. She was personable, but kept a professional distance. She rarely spoke about her private life, and she was mostly known as Ronnie or Monica. On an unspecified date in 1958, 31-year-old Veronica moved to London, seeking work in the West End clubs. Being a fashionable lady, with a neatly coiffured brunette bob, Paris eyebrows and a thick set of red lips, she had a hint of the Hollywood star about her. So it's not surprising that she found work as a nightclub hostess. And yet she also worked as a sex worker. But she didn't turn to prostitution owing to desperation or addiction. Sex work was a conscious choice. She chose the hours, the places and the punters. She was financially astute enough to spend and save her money well. Hence, she was always immaculately dressed. But also, she had the foresight to be able to afford her own rented flat at 55 Charteris Road in Kilburn. It was only small, but this first floor, front-facing bedsit, was perfect. Perched on a residential street, it was the perfect place for such a private person. But it also afforded her the privacy to bring her clients back home. Being far from a shrinking wallflower, life in the big city didn't scare Veronica. As she had street smarts, she was savvy and she was cautious. She was chatty enough to make even the most nervous of men feel calm. But also, she had the confidence to stand her own ground when they got rough with her. But then again, everybody makes mistakes. It was the bitterly cold winter's night of Monday the 15th of December 1958. There was no snow, but typically it was cold and wet as Veronica stood to the side of Trafalgar Square. This was a regular pickup point for horny punters being conveniently situated near pubs, hotels, a train station, and several theatres. Nearby, a Salvation Army band made merry music. The bells of St. Martin's rang out. Chestnuts of dubious origin slowly roasted in an old steel drum, and the city was blessed with a Christmassy feel now that all of the wartime rationing was well and truly over. At an unspecified hour, in or near midnight, Veronica was approached by a punter. He was just a boy, no bigger than Veronica, but easily a few stones lighter. With a weak little body and a babyish face, he was barely out of his teens, but was desperate to act like Billy Big Bollocks, bragging about all of his sexual conquests and yet experience had told her it was most likely his first time. I'd been drinking in the West End, and I got very drunk, he would later state. To Veronica, this would have been obvious given his slurred speech and staggering limbs. So perhaps she didn't see this tipsy little boy with a boner as a threat. Maybe he was easy money. She had been with pathetic little man-babies many times before. So it's highly likely, having paid his pound, that he would struggle to raise his pointless little pecker, and as a two-pumps-and-a-squirt merchant, he would fart and fall asleep. I picked up a prostitute in Trafalgar Square. She called the taxi, and I remember she gave an address of somewhere in Kilburn. 
The journey took 30 minutes, as the cab rode past Hyde Park and up Edgware Road. In his nasal Welsh drone, maybe Michael tried to impress her with a few bullshit tales, at which, being professional, she smiled. But so unmemorable was the journey, that during the investigation, it was almost impossible for the police to track down the driver. As to him, it was just a regular fare. Sometime after midnight, the cab pulled up to 58 Chartres Road. We got to her house and climbed up the stairs to her room. Michael paid the agreed amount. They entered the house and both Michael and Veronica were quiet. It was a small clean room with a floral double bed, a wardrobe brimming with fashionable clothes, a neat dresser covered with curling tongs, brushes and a fine array of cosmetics with a coin-operated meter for both the lights and the gas heater and on the mantelpiece lay a few personal possessions. Some photos, a postcard, a trinket, and a pair of pink ornamental dumbbells weighing six pounds each. What they meant to her is unknown, but clearly they held importance. According to his statement, I had sex with her. And went, to sleep. and went to sleep. And that was that. But how much of that was true? When questioned, Michael Dowdell would state, when she woke me up, we had a row over something, and she called me a filthy little Welsh bastard. Only nobody heard a fight. I threw a vase at her. I believe it smashed. Which was true, but no one knows how it smashed or when. She came at me and hit me with something on the back of the neck and the head and scratched my nose and my eyes. But by the time he was interviewed, no marks or scars could be seen. So already, his statement had gaps. I rushed to them. I knocked her down. And then I grabbed an ornament off the mantelpiece and I hit her on the head or the face. I think she was half getting up. I pulled her onto the bed and I remember chucking some clothes over. I took a bottle of whiskey and then I left the place. But why? Did she mock his tiny manhood? Did he struggle to sexually perform? Was this simply a bungled robbery? Or did this man-baby erupt into an uncontrollably violent tantrum because he couldn't get his own way. When I woke up, I found blood on my hands, my shirt and my suit. I chucked the shirt away in the dustbin, having tried to wash it, and I sent the suit to the cleaners. A day or two afterwards, I read in the newspapers that a prostitute had been murdered in Kilburn. I knew I knew I had killed the woman. So perhaps this was an accident. Or maybe, for the most immature reason imaginable, his tears welled, his lips quivered. His tantrum sparked, and his hate-fueled violence erupted. Marking this as one of the first fledgling steps of a potential serial killer.
by Friday the 19th of December 1958. A girlfriend of Veronica's had grown concerned, as no one had seen or heard from her for five days. Neither at the nightclub she worked at, nor on the Soho sex scene. At 6pm, she phoned the Turkish landlord of 58 Charteris Road, a man named Ratimir Tasik. He assumed that she wasn't in, as the lights were off, the room was cold, and the door was locked from the outside. But using his master key to gain entry, the inside of her room told a very different story. Drawers were opened, contents were scattered, and although the room was in disarray, nothing of any real value had been taken, except maybe a bottle of whiskey to either be drank, sold, or traded. On the bed, partially obscured by sheets, lay the body of a woman, all silent and still. Her skin was sickly pale, yet mottled with patches of purple, as the excitable buzz of flies and the wriggle of maggots formed amidst the sheets caked with blood and within the impacted recesses of her very obvious wounds. Veronica had been dead for five days, maybe six, but exactly what time she had died was impossible to tell owing to her clothes. Sprawled across the bed, with both legs splayed, she lay naked except for her brown pullover, which had been partially pulled up over her head, as if her killer no longer wanted to see into the black hemorrhages of her bloodshot eyes. But instead, he dreamed of doing something unimaginable to her body. What the pullover hid was what ultimately ended her life. From the mantelpiece, he grabbed one of the pair of pink ornamental dumbbells made from heavy cast iron and weighing six pounds apiece. One had remained untouched and clean, but the other lay on the floor, matted with her hair and dripping with her blood. As with the uncontrollable force of a petulant anger, he had bludgeoned her senseless, inflicting six wounds to her forehead and multiple fractures to her cracked and crushed skull. As her face swelled, fluid constricted her skull and the pressure forced her eyes to protrude from their sockets. A brain hemorrhage would have taken several agonizing minutes for Veronica to die. But had her killer been so panicked at his actions, if this had merely been an accident, he wouldn't have had the presence of mind to switch off the lights, to lock the door, and to do what he did next. For this, he was calm, steady, and in a state of either arousal or enjoyment. With steady hands, he had inflicted a most unusual wound. Around her thighs and abdomen were three identical marks, a set of circular abrasions on her skin, which formed an intricate V-shape. What it meant, we don't know. What he used, that was missing. But noted pathologist Dr. Donald Tear concluded that they were not bite marks, but had been made by a manufactured item with a flat end. As each mark had occurred post-mortem, her killer hadn't fled in panic. Instead, he waited in that room, with her body, and calmly inflicted each wound, either after her death or as she lay dying. As the terrified woman 
helplessly lay there, her body bleeding, her eyes fixed, and unable to breathe or scream. That is the mark of a true sadist. The investigation was headed up by Detective Superintendent Evan Davies of Scotland Yard. The room was preserved for evidence, and fingerprints other than Veronica's had been found. One on a teacup, suggesting she had invited her killer in, and one on a bloodied coat hanger, which was never conclusively proven, but may have been inserted inside her. The fingerprints were examined, but they did not prove a match to anyone with a criminal record, and neither did the M.O. of this murder. With no witnesses to the crime, being a sex worker who kept to herself, and a Northern Irish woman who was new to the area, police contacted her friends and family, but drew a blank. In the Christmas Eve edition of the Daily Mirror, police posted a picture on the front page pleading, Did you see this woman? But with no witnesses, this produced no suspects, and the investigation went cold. 19-year-old Michael Douglas Dowdle was an unlikely suspect, being small, weak, and baby-faced. With no prior convictions, this nobody had never come to the attention of the police. Therefore, he was not on their radar, not even for theft or assault. But within this little boy, lurk the heart of a sadist. My mates think, My I'm, mates queer. think I'm queer. I've tried to show tried them to show that they're wrong, about, they're wrong me. about me. I really have. I really have. But they always but they make always me feel like I'm a nobody, like a, nobody. A, nothing. a nothing. Well, I'll show it, I'll show it, won't I? Won't I? Won't I? Veronica Murray was his first. But more victims would feel the wrath of the sadistic little drummer boy. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. As always, for those of you who love hearing cake crumbs fall from a fat man's mush while he waffles on about stuff and things, join me after the break for a little quiz and some extra details in Extra Mile. A big thank you to my new Patreon supporters, who are Barbara Anderson, Zoe Taylor, and Julian Barnes. I thank you for supporting the show and I hope you've received your goodies in the post. With a special thank you to Bernadette H and an anonymous friend for your very kind donations via the supporter link. I thank you. Murder Mile was research written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST.
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. God, I was excessively burpy during that. No idea why I was so burpy during that. I two pieces of toast with some Marmite on it, which is normally sufficient. But it's just really burpy. I've been really windy for the last couple of days. I think it's probably because I've I've been making some nice ramens and things like that, and putting in lots of chili and uh, stuff like that. So I'm excessively windy. People who know me know that excessively windy means excessively windy. Uh, I'm a windy person. Anyway, hey everyone, how you all doing? You all good? Well and happy and things. Uh, up early as always doing this is it is it dawn yet no i don't think it is i'm just gonna open some curtains uh, oh look sunlight yeah it is that's that would explain why the little coot outside is being a pain in the ass opposite me is a little sunken boat it's a kind of a work barge and uh it's almost fallen into water and coot is He's kind of owned it as his own. It's like 70 foot long and he's owned it as his own. He's like, oh, this is mine. And anyone comes near it, he goes, he does his... Just, oh, it's so annoying. Honestly, coots are really stupid. They spend most of their lives trying to get other coots away. And it's like you, you throw out food to the coots and they, they spend most of the time chasing away ducks and stuff like that. And you just think to yourself, just grab the food, you stupid little thing. But they're very territorial. Anyway, I can hear, oh, I can hear more coots in the background. Lovely. Right. Just going to oh, just gonna open up some more windows. Pop on a kettle. Make myself a, uh, a lovely, lovely instant coffee. Mm, yum. Yum, yum. Day outside is looking a bit grey today. Nice yesterday, nice and sunny, so I had all the solar panels pointing that way. My Christmas lights, my security lights, um, new security lights. After one, one of my neighbours had a bit of an argument with my boat in the middle of the night. I think he might have been unwell, uh, and he decided to smash my security lights. Yeah, so I've got new security lights, which is good because the old ones were shit anyway. So the blessing. We've got nice security lights and some Christmas lights. Oh, what? Oh, cake. Cake, 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 cake. Yes, here we go. Right, coming back. Coffee's on, coming back. Oh, I visited the little bakery yesterday. It's quite funny when I go into there now. I walk in there and I go, hello. And I have a, look, I have a quick look around and go, hello. And they go, how can we help? And I go, I have a, a, a granary loaf and a Belgian bun and uh, a, a cherry bakewell and a bread pudding. And they just, they're used to me now, so they just stand there and they stare at me because they know I'm gonna go, oh, and I'll have one of those as well, and then one of those, so uh, yeah. So I've got, I've got a nice cherry bakewell tonight. They're nice, they're, they're nice and thick. They do them really nicely, and the uh, everything about it is really nice. Uh, yesterday, I had a nice big Belgian bun that they do. They do really big Belgian buns with le uh, lemon curd in the center. Uh, and sultanas, and they're really nice. So uh, yeah, I'm really enjoying those. Uh, although it's making me put on a lot of weight. So uh, apart from that, apart from that, all good here. Having some some nice walks in the evening. It's it's gone really cold now, so fire is on. Uh, but I have a nice walk at night. I did twenty thousand steps yesterday, which was good. And I try and do some today. Although it's hard to write during edit days because I'm pretty much flat out all day. But. Uh, Hopefully uh, this won't be a difficult one, even though I burped through most of that episode. Burped and could barely get my words out. Oh dear. Uh, what else is going on? Uh, the book writing is going well. I'm doing that on uh, Fridays and Saturdays and some parts of Sundays. So that's good. Covering a lot of cases. Whoa, coffee's done. 
away with me I put it next to, oh I took it away and I didn't put any water in it like an idiot my brain is not working today but there we go and now I've put too much water in which means it's gonna spill everywhere oh. right coming back this is too hot so now I can't drink it and now I've just spilled some on the floor like a twat uh, yeah, book writing is going well. Lots of new cases. I found another one the other week. I keep finding murders in the same buildings, and then I, do, I think to, I always say to myself, "Let's just do a little bit on this. Let's not make it too big." And then I realise it's it's quite an interesting case, and I'm like, "Oh, I've got to really flesh this out." So yeah, hopefully that will be done by summer. Hopefully, um, and hopefully by then I'll have the new tours up and running as well, which will be good. Three more tours to go. <coughs> all been very nice everyone's been very pleasant looking forward to having them done Whoa, December 12th last one and then no more of these tours great I'm looking forward to not having to memorize the script anymore just have a little a little bit more fun with the new tours um, what else is happening thinking about maybe doing some meetups in the new year across the UK uh, haven't planned anything yet but that will be something that we'll do keep it simple uh me uh, a couple of other podcasters meet up in different towns and cities across the country see how it goes um plan is all free uh a f something that we get is affordable for the podcasters but also kind of free for everyone to turn up and just have a bit of fun really so that's a plan for next year uh, haven't got anything confirmed yet. Well, not. It's just an idea. Um, right, let's do the quiz, and then we'll, uh, we'll then we'll do some extra stuff. Don't forget, I will probably ball some of this up. I might give away the answers, or I might edit it out of the episode because I haven't edited it yet. <sighs> so, oh, that cake looks good. Uh, question number one: What was Michael's middle name? Don't like the fact that he's a, he's a sadistic little bastard, and he's called Michael. Uh, question two, um, uh, Michael was born in Uckfield, but which part of London did he partially grow up in? Seagulls are out. Shitting everywhere. Little bastards, is it shat on my, there's a big shat on my window. A massive William Shatner. Uh, question three, um, where in Northern Ireland did Veronica come from? I feel like I'm smaller in the seat i don't know why maybe my microphone's up higher i just feel weird at the moment question four uh what did michael steal from veronica's bedsit i haven't even written that answer in i know what it is thank god uh, question five what age was veronica that's obviously what age was she when she died not what age was she at any point in her life uh, question six, where did Veronica meet Michael? Question seven, how much gin did Michael drink on his 18th birthday? Uh, question nine, easy question, what position did he hold in the band? Oh, that was question eight. Uh, question nine, what rank was Michael's father? And question 10, where were the Welsh Guards based when they were in London? Coot. He does that all the frickin' time. Oh, he just wastes his energy so much. If he chilled out, I think he should just get stoned or something. It's like he's just he's just tense. Imagine his little heart is just going... Probably like that. It's, it's like I'm on a bit of the river and the uh, where... Uh, there's a couple of weirs near me so that the water rushes down here quite fast and it's it's fast current so you've got to kind of pin your pin your boat in and make sure it's safe and sometimes when coot is chasing the other coots away he's chasing them upstream so he's fighting against the current and you can see his little legs going really really paddling away and he's going at like about half a mile an hour and you just think mate just chill out fuck's sake um so uh, <laughs> Let's do some extra details about this case. This is going to be a little bit difficult because obviously this is a two-parter and the second part is next week, but I haven't written part two yet, so I don't want to... 
I don't want to kind of spoil things. So what we might end up doing is just going over a couple of things that we already know and having a little bit of a thought, think about it. So, um, Veronica Murray, we don't really know much about her. We don't know whether that's her full name. Uh, everyone called her Ronnie, which is short for Veronica. People also called her Monica, which they said was her street name. Um, she was, because of her age, we know that she was born... See, I was good. I skirted around that question. She was born in or around 1927 or 28 in Londonderry, but that might have not have been her age or when she was born or exactly where she was born. Uh, there's a lot of details about her that don't make sense. Apparently, she was an ex-convent girl. Um, she doesn't seem to have any family in London, so we don't know why she came to London. She seemed to be... Maybe she was running away? We don't know. We really don't know. We don't even know when she turned up in London. Oh, she seems to have appears in London 1958, but the police know that she has a, a, a prior record as a what they refer to as a common prostitute. Um, and she was known in and around the streets and clubs of Soho. So uh, Peter Street, Rupert Street, Berwick Street, which is kind of the areas that... She would hang out uh, if you were going to pick up punters, but she didn't pick up Michael there, which kind of begs the question why she wasn't picking up punters there, why she wasn't in her usual area. Um, we know that she moved into Charteris Road in June 1958. Uh, you can have a look at the, the little video I posted. I had to do that quite quite sneakily because it was a very quiet street and it's hard to, it's hard to p take pictures and record things on a street and people were coming in and out because it was a Sunday and uh, I think there was someone in that house so I was trying to be really discreet about it uh, but it was the front first front the first floor front room uh, it was a uh, lodging house ran by uh, Rataneer Tassik who was a student teacher who was the kind of the uh, landlord of the house very simple room had a lockable door, a, 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 a double bed, so kind of not a big bed, but kind of a, a doubleish bed. Uh, a mantelpiece with a fire that wasn't there anymore. And on there were those ornamental pink dumbbells made of cast iron. So it's weird. They were, they were described as ornamental, but they weighed the right weight for proper dumbbells. But they seem to be a pink and heavily decorated. So it's... It doesn't really make it doesn't I don't really understand why they're there what their purpose was what the significance was for her uh yeah um it, they're clearly important because if you think about it if she did travel from Northern Ireland or wherever she came from prior to that they were each six pounds each so she was carrying 12 pound dumbbells with her so maybe she was just really into fitness but if she was really into fitness why would she have ornamental dumbbells why wouldn't she just have regular cast iron dumbbells or maybe she was quite an artistic person and she painted them herself and maybe that was her thing to keep herself entertained was do you know she kept herself fit with the dumbbells but then she painted them herself we don't know and we don't unfortunately the police files aren't available for at least another 20 years so this is one of those cases where there's going to be bits that are just missing really badly missing um we know bits and pieces about Michael. You can see the pictures that are posted of him. He really does look like a little bit of a baby. He would have a babyish face until he was old. Uh, he, he's got a very kind of a hint of Charlie Brown about him. Um, and when you kind of look at him, he really does look innocent. You can't imagine that he could probably do anything evil or nasty. But, you know, there's evil within people. Um, as mentioned in the story, his mother and father both died early. We don't know why his mother died. Um, that would have been 1948. So the war was over, maybe illness. We don't know. Uh, we don't know much about his brother, Isaac. He had another, he had an older brother and we don't know where his brother went, whether he went with him or not. He, he doesn't seem to appear anywhere in the story and there, there doesn't seem to be much, reference to any family members in any other parts of this this story as well so that they seem to disappear maybe they do maybe they don't uh it's it's slightly baffling clearly he was a, a troubled child uh they said he was uh, uncontrollable at school a problem child he was referred to the child care officer of london county council when he was just six and a half years old cripes uh he was a difficult boy who always got into trouble they described him as destructive. 
who would easily become hysterical, unruly, violent and vicious. Uh, he's uh, he looks smaller than he actually is when uh, when i looked at him i thought he's probably about five three five four but he's not he's about five eight so he's about average height for the for then um but when you look at him i think because of the shape of his head he's got a big head but a thin body so kind of like a baby he's got a babyish face he looks smaller he looks thinner he looks and he is quite weak as well so you can see why he was probably (coughs) picked on quite a lot um inch long scar along his nose uh we're not too sure whether that was uh inflicted in a knife fight uh or maybe he did it himself we don't know but this is kind of the story that's perpetuated that's out there um apparently he tried to burn down his auntie's house twice although that as far as we can see there doesn't seem to be a criminal record for that so he would have been a teenager at the time he probably may have been charged it may not be on his record anymore uh, or maybe the family didn't want to get the police involved so and maybe it was just an attempted fire we again these are all details that we really don't know much about about him i'd love to get hold of that file and have a really good look at it and just um just see what's going on unfortunately not available one file as mentioned not available for 20 years another file not available until 20 i think it's 2062 so uh yeah i'm just having to i've had to piece this from all the different sources that i can find and kind of cross-reference them uh he joined the welsh guards when he was 15 so that would be right he would have left school at 14 if he finished school uh in the third company of first battalion of welsh guards as a drummer boy uh, we don't know whether he was musical prior to that we don't seem to know a lot about his his uh his history but it's interesting that he would go into music because he doesn't seem to have the discipline to be military and he doesn't seem to have the the patience to be a musician so why he decided to be a drummer boy we don't know maybe he was desperate to kind of uh his father was in the military maybe he was desperate to kind of show that he could be as good as his father his father seems to be the kind of the driving force of his father's gone he wants to be as good as his father was, but obviously he's small and weak. Uh, we don't know much about his father, so whether his father would have been quite a, a, a commanding figure, being a, a captain or or not. So <coughs> this seems to be an, uh, an interesting part in his life where he clearly has he clearly wants to prove himself to people that he was that he is a man, but he's one of these people who just seems to be a, a boy, constantly a boy. Uh, we don't know much about his suicide attempts we we know that he definitely suffers with some kind of mental illness he's definitely suffering with some kind of depression and anxiety anxiety seems to be a big thing in his life as his commanding officer said he had delusions of grandeur despite being small weak and insignificant um he'd gone awol so absent without leave four times prior during the three years that he was in the welsh guards uh, and once whilst in military detention he tried to hang himself uh so that was 1956 so he'd been in the guards for barely a year by that point uh and at that point he was under arrest for being able uh, we don't know any more about that unfortunately I'd love to know more about that because that, i think that kind of gives you a good insight into his mind um he would uh disappear quite often to go into the west end he drank a lot he smoked a lot uh, and would constantly visit sex workers um as a uh, a drummer boy he wouldn't really have been paid that well especially uh military as well mm. oh coffee yummy um but he always seemed to have money on on him we will dive into that next week there's there's more to say about uh his back history here this is why i'm being quite cautious about this i don't want to give away too much uh his 18th birthday so december uh, 1958 he went out with sergeant P- plotsworthy corporal hopkins and another guardsman they were all significantly older than him they went to a hotel in guildford i couldn't find out which one uh and it is said he drank four or five oh hang on that's one of the questions isn't it well luckily luckily i was about to give you different measurements then he drank a shit ton of gin uh uh far too much when you look at that it's just ridiculous uh although the rest of the group just drank beer uh he had to be carried out of the hotel and taken back to his barracks by taxi the next morning he did not go on parade 
there's a big section here that I'm going to leave out because that's important for next week. Um, so meeting Veronica, is that one of the questions? Oh, I can leave that out. Uh, so uh, when he met up with Veronica, he was, um, as mentioned, he was in civvies. He was not in his uniform that day. It was just before Christmas. Um, oh, yeah. No, we had mentioned that. So we met her uh, just outside Trafalgar Square, which is just south of uh, Leicester Square. Um, she called a taxi or picked up a taxi and went back to their address. This was his words. I'll, I'll read this. Just before Christmas 1958, I had been drinking in the West End and I got very drunk. I picked up a prostitute in Trafalgar Square. She called a taxi and I remember she gave an address somewhere in Kilburn. We got to her house and climbed up the stairs to her room. I had sex with her and went to sleep. When she woke up, we had a row over something and she called me a filthy little Welsh bastard. I threw a vase at her. I believe it smashed. She came at me and hit me with something on the back of the he back of the neck and head and scratched my nose and eyes. Um, I rushed at her and knocked her down and then grabbed an ornament off the mantelpiece and hit her on the head or face. I think she was half getting up. I pulled her onto the bed. I remember chucking some clothes over her. Um, I took, oh, I took something, and then I left. I left the place. Uh, I went back to the Union Jack Club. This is a place that we've seen many times before, which was a serviceman's hostel at Waterloo Station, uh, and went to sleep. When I woke up, I found blood on my hands, on my shirt, and my suit was covered in blood. I chucked the shirt, shirt away in the dustbin at the camp. I tried to wash it, but I could not get rid of the blood. I sent the suit to the cleaners, and two days afterwards, I read in the newspapers that a prostitute had been found murdered in Kilburn. Uh, I knew that I had killed the woman. Uh, he said it was one or two days later. It was actually five days later. Um, this, um, as noted, his birthday was two days, three days before uh, he visited Veronica. So he's clearly out on the town getting drunk, celebrating his birthday. Uh, probably arseholders. Or this is the thing. It's hard. It's because because no one kind of saw him before or afterwards. It's hard to say how, exactly how drunk he was. Was he as blind drunk as he was in Guildford with the kind of the guardsman where he could barely stand up, or was he just very drunk? He seems to get very paralytic for no particular reason. Oh, so yeah, we do again. These details we don't know. We don't know how much of this is is him very conscious or partially unconscious or in a kind of a deluded state or what is going on with him. Um, uh, Veronica was found nineteenth uh, of December, nineteen fifty-eight, which was the Friday end of the week. End of the week. One of her friends had called up the landlords and said, "I haven't seen her for a couple of days." Uh, so he opened the bedroom door and went in, and he saw it was in. Uh, disorder uh, pretty much have described everything that happened in that episode it was roughly around 6 p.m that he entered into that room um uh, yeah i think yeah i think that's it it's, it's those markings on the body that don't make sense so obviously she was hit over the head repeatedly with the dumbbell the six pound dumbbell but it's those markings on the body that don't make sense three small circular marks on they say the abdomen or thighs. So it looks like they're on in, as mentioned in a kind of a V-shaped pattern. They're deliberately put in a specific place, but we just don't know what they mean. They 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 don't make any sense at all. Uh, maybe some more on that next week. Who knows? But yeah, it's uh, very unusual. And 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 the as mentioned, the pathologist does not know what caused them either. It's definitely something that was man-made, but uh, it's baffling. Um. Uh, I think that's it. Fingerprints, as mentioned, fingerprints found in the room. Uh, one on a teacup in the room, so it's likely that they would have had a drink. This is kind of a common thing that you go into a room with a, a sex worker and then she might make you a cup of tea or you have a, uh, a slug of whiskey and then you get down to the biz. Um, but there was also blood on one of the coat hangers. Uh, and this was never expressly said, but it was suggested that it, this may have been inserted into her. This was kind of kept out a lot of the press reports because it was a little bit too, a little bit too vulgar, and uh, they kind of didn't want this mentioned. So uh, I'd be interested to see what is in the original police report, what what her f the full extent of her injuries were. 
So I think that will give you a greater insight into what he's like. Uh, but we'll dive into some more of that next week. We will learn more about uh, Michael and his um, his his claims. Uh, let's do the quiz question answers. So, what was Michael's middle name? It was Douglas. Douglas. Uh, he Michael was born in Uckfield. But which part of London did he partially grow up in? It was Paddington. Where in Northern Ireland did Veronica come from? That was Londonderry. What did Michael steal from Veronica's bedsit? It was a bottle of whiskey. Although it'd be nice to see... That's all that they seem to say was stolen. But obviously... I. I think it's hard to kind of, unless you really know a person well, I think it's really hard to say what has been stolen from someone's room. Because, like, if someone came in here now and stole something, I think the only reason you would know that something's missing is maybe, you know, where they haven't dusted, there'll probably be a hole. Or if, you know, if they're stolen... um, I used to I used to live not too far away from a cash converters and all the junkies would come in with, uh, with, like, DVD players... And they'd walk in with DVD players with like a copy of Dumbo still in it. And the cables still had trailing out the back where they clearly robbed someone's house. And they were coming to flog it off so they could buy some more smack. Um, and uh, so that's the only reason you can probably see that something's missing is if there's a space. But how would they know really what was missing from our flat? You know, how do you know how much money someone has in their purse or wallet? Yeah. So, yeah, it's hard to tell. But that, but so clearly they knew that a bottle of whiskey was missing. Uh, what age was Victoria when she died? She was 31. Um, oh, this was a question. So I did balls it up. So there you go. You, you get this one for free. Where did Veronica meet Michael? Uh, that was Trafalgar Square. There you go. There's a freebie for you. So even if you normally get no answers right, you've just got one right. Yay. Um, How much gin? uh, Question seven. How much gin did Michael drink on his 18th birthday? I almost balls it up. Uh, It was three pints of gin, which they described as... um, uh, They described it as four, four to five half pints. So he seemed to be drinking half pints. What a twat. Uh, Question eight. Uh, what position did he hold in the band? This is not a difficult question. Everyone should have got this right because it's it's actually the title of the episode. He was a drummer boy. Um, question nine. What rank was Michael's father? He was a captain. And where were the Welsh Guards based when they were in London? They were at Chelsea Barracks. There we go. Job done. Uh, good that's me done so i'm gonna oh i'm gonna power through and edit this uh, eat my cake have my coffee power through edit this oh and hopefully get it all done <sighs> get it all done by thursday night and then friday and start writing the book again oh right thank you for listening everyone have yourself a good week stay safe be good eat cake as always Be good. Lots of love. Bye-bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.